Friends, let me congratulate you for showing up pretty much on time on Time Change Sunday. I have to confess, this is probably the first year I ever wished that I lived in Saskatchewan because they don't do this time change thing. And I was doing really well this morning. I brought chili, I had everything organized, and I forgot the PowerPoint at home. So we're improvising today. Kate and Tamara are awesome. So we're a little bit, we're doing well. But uh, anyway, I'm glad you're here. Now, instead of an image I have to show you, I need you to use your imagination. How many people here have ever seen the Royal Canadian Mounted Police musical ride? They have these marvelous black horses that they raise on a special farm on the Ottawa River. And they're bred specific ride. And so they have these dark horses and these scarlet, scarlet tunics. They look just awesome. It's a really impressive sight. And for somebody who grew up with horses and probably spent more time falling off than on horses, I can appreciate the skill of uh, these men and women in the musical ride. Typically, at the end of the show, there's a very famous formation they make. It, they, they end up kind of in a circle with their lances pointed into the middle of the circle. It used to be on the old $50 bill. I rarely, rarely, I very rarely ever possessed a $50 bill, but I've heard stories about $50 bills that on the back of the old ones, there used to be a picture of the musical ride mounted in a circle with their lances pointed at each other. Now think of that image. Circle of horsemen with these special lances drop down and pointing at each other. Is there anyone here who grew up in Newfoundland? Okay, I won't offend you. There's another name for that picture. It's called a Newfie firing squad. Because, and unfortunately, it resembles a lot of church meetings that I've been at. Because all of a sudden, you'll have these people in a circle with their lances ready to go, and someone yells, Charge! And they charge each other. Now, Elam's not a church like that. We're not in that situation, which is great. But unfortunately, sometimes internal conflict and not outside opposition can really derail a work of God. And the story that I'm going to read you this morning out of Nehemiah chapter 5 is very instructive for us. When we're trying to do something for God, it's very easy for us to get derailed. And sometimes there's outside opposition, and sometimes there's internal conflict. And internal conflict can take us off course. And the whole point of Nehemiah chapter 5 is this. Listen, we must be the church before we build the church. Very foundational. We must be the church before we can build the church. Here's what's going on. You remember in Nehemiah, their, their, what was their big task? Rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And everybody pitched in. Perfume makers and priests and goldsmiths and everybody from the jewelry counter at uh, the bay pitched in and just they worked together to build the wall. And they were doing well. They had it halfway built. A lot of outside opposition. Nehemiah and everybody just prayed like crazy and kept on task. But then a problem arose that was an internal problem. And here's what happened. 
Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, We're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others are saying, We've had to borrow money to pay the the king's taxes on our land. And although we're of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we've had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because of our fields. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest, which is against the, New Test- the Old Testament law. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who are sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they couldn't find anything to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. How do you think this, this would play on Bay Street? Give them, give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards. Sorry. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you're charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We'll give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way, may God shake out of their houses and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this The whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. So here's a summary of what's going on. Everyone's working on the wall. They haven't had a chance to work on their crops or farm the land. There have been famine in the land before. Some people hadn't been able to pay the taxes, and they had to borrow money to get through the next year. And they were in debt and sinking further and further and further in debt. If you've ever been enslaved to a credit card at their 20-some percent they charge, you know what I mean. Just paying the minimum balance, just trying to get, just trying to maintain your debt, and your debt grows bigger and bigger and bigger. Or if you're like some of those unfortunate folks who get caught in this payday loan scam, it's unbelievable the interest they charge. Those payday loan companies, they're, I honestly don't know how the government can allow such scam artists to be operating. It's despicable what they charge people and take advantage of people who often don't have the resources to, uh, to manage their own money. And they just, they just prey on the poor and take advantage of them. And our big national banks withdraw their little neighborhood branches because they don't make enough money for the shareholders. And sorry, I'm ranting. I sound like an NDP this morning. But you'll understand why in a minute. It's just the injustice. Injustice is not a new thing. 
Back here, back in this story, the rich were manipulating and exploiting the poor, and Nehemiah was so furious. He was so angry. He wasn't angry because someone had cut him off in traffic or inconvenienced him or his favorite team had lost. I'm getting over yesterday with the Jets. He was angry because the poor were being exploited. And there was conflict inside God's family. They were not being the church, so to speak. They were not acting like God's people. And Jews were taking advantage of their fellow Jews. Children were being sold into slavery because their parents couldn't afford the debt. And the whole community had been raising money to buy Jews out of debt and set them free, only to see them recycled into slavery because the wealthy Jews and nobles and leaders were exploiting the poor. Nehemiah said, enough is enough. This has got to stop. Because the work of God was grinding to a halt. Now, Nehemiah just was not just concer- concerned about his construction schedule being disrupted by this. He was deeply grieved because the church was not acting like the church. It's so grievous to me and grievous to God when those people who call themselves Christian act nothing like it. It's sad and disgusting and all too common. Breath, because I don't have anybody here in mind in particular, okay? It's just like, glad he's not thinking about me. But this is a chance for us to do some soul-searching this morning. I'm not, it's not my goal to make you feel guilty today. That's Holy Spirit's job is to convict. It's not the, the preacher's job to make you feel guilty because guilt is only a short-term effective and the short-term is a motivator and you'll, you'll go away and, and put this out of your head. But if the Holy Spirit is convicting you in something, He will lovingly keep nudging you until you respond and repent. That's the way He works with me anyway. But it's such a sad thing for the reputation of God when the church does not act like the church. When we're not who we're supposed to be. And that's what was going on. That was really Nehemiah's chief concern. Because God's reputation was taking a huge beating in this situation. And he said, now look at you guys. You're selling your fellow Jews into slavery. What are the neighboring Gentiles going to think? What are they going to think of God's people? Because you are dragging down God's reputation. He said, this has absolutely got to stop. So he confronts the people. And to their credit, he, he, he has a, a public confrontation. And it's interesting the way, when he hears of this, he immediately gets angry, but he doesn't just fly off the handle. The scripture says, when I heard this, I was very angry. And then, what did he do next? He pondered the situation. And likely, knowing Nehemiah, from what we know about him, he probably prayed about it and said, Lord, this is a mess. This is absolutely disgusting. What are we going to do about this? So he stopped and he gathered his thoughts and wisely pulled himself together. He didn't just explode with anger. Instead of going off 
on the people in the heat of the moment, Nehemiah pauses, takes a deep breath, and thinks about it. Proverbs 16.32 says this, It is better to be slow-tempered than famous. It is better to have self-control than to control an army. Any leader who is hot-tempered and quick to react will soon discover that he or she can destroy their credibility by flying off the handle. So Nehemiah is angry, but he does not allow his anger to control him. After thinking things over, Nehemiah decides to publicly confront the people whose selfishness had created this problem. Because it involved the whole nation, it demanded public rebuke and repentance. So he makes several appeals to them. He appeals to their love. And he says to them, you're robbing your own countrymen. And he uses the the word brother four different times in his speech. He reminds them of God's redemptive purposes. He says, look, God has set us free out of captivity to come back and start our own country again. So why are you selling people into slavery? It doesn't make sense. His appeal is based on God's word. Nehemiah calls them on the carpet. What you are doing is not right. You're breaking the commands laid out in the Pentateuch in the first five uh, chapters of the Old Testament. They needed to remember their witness. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, but how can you be a light when your actions are dark and shady? How can the church possibly to be hope to be light if we do things that are underhanded and sneaky and just despicable? How can we hold our heads up and say, Jesus is changing right out when we treat each other badly? There, there's no consistency to that. Because they weren't right in their relationship with God, they weren't able to have a right relationship with every people around them, and they weren't having any positive impact in their, in, in their neighborhood. And instead of making people thirsty for God, the salt of the earth had lost its saltiness. He appeals to his own actions. Nehemiah lent money himself, but he didn't charge interest. He was just helping people get back on their feet. He wasn't trying to rip people off or exploit them. In fact, we don't have time this morning, but he goes on in the end of the chapter. He says, I lead by example. Nehemiah didn't take any of the government perks that he could have taken. It's really interesting. You should, this afternoon, you should go home and read the end of chapter 5 of Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah says, I was entitled to all these rights and I paid my own expenses. Basically, I don't know what civil servant in Canada would be able to serve at their own expense. Very few. But that's what Nehemiah did. Because the taxes were so onerous and so heavy on the people already, he served at his own expense. And he supported a a large number of people in his household as well. Finally, he appeals to the, the... the judgment of God. And he warns them, you know, God is going to judge us. And he has this dramatic demonstration. He shakes out the fold and says, anybody who doesn't listen to what I'm saying today, to what God is saying, you're going to be shaken out like this. You're going to be sifted out. Fortunately, people repented. They said, I get it. Godly leaders always lead by example. They always lead by example. And that's what Nehemiah was doing. Before thinking about how he could make a prophet himself, 
he thought about what was pleasing to God. And he described how previous governors got wealthy at the expense of the people, but when he compared himself to what other people did, Nehemiah said, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. So he did, chose not to live extravagantly, but he lived a generous life because he revered, he loved and revered God, and he also called the people he was called to serve. We need to pray for more Nehemiahs to be raised up in the church and in our country. We need more people like this. And as I was thinking about this sermon and researching and praying, I was trying to think, God, do we have any Nehemiahs in our recent history? And I can think of one. I wouldn't totally agree with his politics or likely not totally agree with his theology. But I want to tell you a story about a Canadian who spent his formative years here in Winnipeg, actually. His name was Tommy Douglas, and a few years ago, I don't know if you remember, that CBC had a good, big competition on it to find who was the greatest Canadian. And Tommy Douglas is known as the, the father of Canadian health care, universal health care in Canada. Tommy Douglas uh, was born in Scotland, and as a young boy, he grew up in a very poor working class family. As a young boy, he was very sick. He had a very severe infection in his leg. His family could not afford adequate medical care. And the doctors wanted to take off his leg because the infection was so bad. Fortunately for Tommy, a very, gentle, a very generous specialist came along and said, I will treat you for free. And he saved Tommy's leg. That had a profound influence on Tom, Tommy Douglas. And he said later on in life, why should a family be in a situation where they have to choose between a young boy's leg and a young boy's life because they can't afford health care. It's not fair. Tommy's family moves to Winnipeg, and he spends a lot of time being influenced by a man named J.S. Woodworth, who started the CCF, the uh, precursor of what we call the NDP today. And Woodsworth um, actually was very influential, and he was the man really responsible for getting the old age pension started in Canada in the 1920s. He did some interesting backroom dealing with the ruling pa uh, parties at the time. And all of a sudden, there was an old age pension available for people. And Tommy Douglas moves to Saskatchewan in the, in the Depression. And he pastors in, in Weyburn. And uh, things are pretty tough there. And he said, I got so tired. It grieved me so much to be doing funerals of young fathers who were dying because they couldn't afford medical care and they left wives and young families behind. Eventually he goes into politics and uh, universal health care is largely the result of his influence. Now, Tommy Douglas was a Baptist pastor. So I think a lot of... I'm always curious to see what makes people tick, what gives them that impetus. And he just felt it was not right for people not to have adequate health care. He had a heart for the poor. That got him in a, some of trouble with his colleagues. At one uh, large church meeting he was at, one pastor says, up, Tommy, the Bible says, the poor you will always have with you. Now, I don't know how that verse strikes you. It's true that Jesus said that. I don't think that Jesus meant that's life, deal with it, 
just passive resignation, the poor you'll always have with you. I think Jesus meant it in this context. You will always have opportunity to show kindness to the poor. Isn't that great? Isn't that a great way to work out your faith? But Tommy Douglas, I think, represents a modern-day Nehemiah to me. And again, I don't agree with all of his politics or even all of his theology, but to me, he modeled someone inspired by Jesus to live out his faith. He was trying to love God and love his neighbor at the same time. What are we going to do as a church to love God and love our neighbor at the same time? What are we going to do? Next week, next weekend, we really need to be praying this week because we are going to have another working summit and another prayer summit. We're going to be praying and working all next weekend and trying to hear from God and discern from God why does Elam Chapel exist? What is he calling us to do? How is he calling us to love him and to love our neighbor? Where he's got us planted? And this chapter, it just, God just arranged this chapter to pop up, but I think it really speaks to us about what kind of church do we want to be? We have to be the church before we can build the church. Yes, many of us would like to return Elam to its former glory, what that means, and, you know, be prominent church and, you know, have lots of people coming, and that's, that's fine, that's good. But God has planted us here as a spiritual community for a reason. He's got a purpose for us. And we need to have open and repentant hearts to be able to hear from him and saying, okay, Lord, what do you want? We will need to lay our agendas at the door and saying, Lord, what do you have for us? I think God wants to take us on a powerful spiritual adventure into the future. He promised he's already there. He's waiting for us. God's already in the future. He's waiting for us to discover what the, the tasks that he has for us to do. And that's very exciting, I think. But today he wants to remind us that we need to be the church before we can build the church. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for Nehemiah's integrity. Thank you that he had the courage to confront sin. Thank you that those people had repentant hearts. Thank you for the legacy of people like Tommy Douglas who sought to love you and love people at the same time. And these aren't perfect examples, but they're powerful examples of how God can use people to change things for the better. Lord, will you please reveal to us your plan for Elam Chapel, your heart and why you've called us here, and what you have for us to do in the future. We're looking forward to this. In Jesus' name, amen.